Good morning and welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. If you got your Bibles with me, I'd like you to go to John chapter 5. I want to read you a few scriptures today and we're going to talk a little bit about just walking in the image and likeness of God and how we carry that throughout the course of our life. Now, I think I've discovered just a few things about living in the place of peace. To live in a place of peace, it requires one simple thing, and that is keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, beholding the one who is the Prince of Peace. That doesn't mean that you uh, just you know imagine seeing his uh, his face, his eyes, uh, you know his uh, as as he's been painted and as he's been portrayed. What it means is that you examine the virtues of of his character and his being. And me ask the Lord, you know, just just let me see you. And you may picture what we have traditionally painted as Jesus, you know, um, brown hair, short beard, kind eyes, walking on water, knocking at a door, uh, holding his hand out to you, raising someone up, healing someone. You know, those paintings have given us a visual of Jesus the man, God in flesh. And so when we say fixing our eyes on Jesus, you may picture a person, but what I'd like you to do instead is to focus in on the aspects of Jesus reflected in the kingdom. Romans 14, 17 says, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What does joy look like? It looks like laughter. Anytime you see joy erupting from someone, you're seeing an aspect of the kingdom of God. What about peace? Peace is that place of calm where you recognize the presence of the Lord, even in the midst of circumstances that may not be very calm at all. Righteousness, what is that? It's not the good things that we do to try to impress God. It's being at rightness with God. It's recognizing and acknowledging your reconciled union with God the Father because of what Jesus does. Now think about this. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, he reconciled us back to the Father without our help, single-handedly, and it wasn't even our fault. We didn't even do anything. He just did it. Why? Because he's that good. Now, if you really ponder and think about, meditate on that for just a moment, what is that emotion that it produces within you? Thanksgiving, gratitude. Jesus did that for you, for me, before we even got around to trying to do anything to deserve it? That's right. And it's that gratitude that connects us to the heart of Christ himself. That's why the Bible says, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. What a glorious reality that you and I have the ability to fix our eyes on Jesus, his righteousness, his peace, his joy. How about the very nature of the, the love that is his being, his essence? He is, God is love. And God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the three in one represented in Christ fully in that body, did all that he did because of love. We are held together in love. The Bible says in love he predestined us. Ephesians tells us that 
all of the things that he has done into for us come from heart, a place of love. So you and I are literally living in love with God, in the love of God. He holds all things together by the power of his word, and he is by his very nature love. So it is literally the love of God that holds us all together. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians, uh, we are compelled by love. It is the love of Christ that compels us. Having come to this conclusion, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, that one died for all. Therefore, all of us, every one of us, unanimously and together died in his death. He took upon himself not just the sin of humanity, but he took our our death on himself, all of the punishment, all of the judgment on himself, and we died with him. So again, he didn't die just for you, but as you. He brought you with him into the grave and out of the grave. And now you and I, we don't live a dead existence. We live an abundant life existence because of what Christ has done. Jesus Christ set us free, the Bible says, from the law of sin and death. Isn't that amazing that it's called the law of sin? You understand, whenever you read in the New Testament, when you read uh, about the word sin, often it's anything that promotes a perception of distance and separation from God. And of course, those things that we do that 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 uh, destroy ourselves, uh, that cause us to be bound in addictions, to cause us to, to live hurting ourselves and other people. Of course, we can classify those things as sins. But often when the New Testament talks about sin, it was literally talking about still living under an old covenant law-based system. Jesus came to set us free, the Bible says, from the curse of the law. And so what was happening in Jesus' day is he was taking humanity away from a legalistic relationship with God according to law, according to rules, according to regulations, and according to all of the things that was said that you have to do to be right with God. He was taking us away from all of that, putting all the work on himself and giving us his righteousness as a free gift of grace. So then our lives are not lived by discipline, but by passion and gratitude for what's been given to us that we never deserved. Uh, Let me give you a few examples. In John chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus is just about to heal a man who's sitting by a pool. Now, a lot of times when people were sick or had an infirmity, the automatic assumption is there is sin in their life. Matter of fact, one time, the disciples literally asked Jesus about a blind man, hey, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, this isn't a sin issue, but that the glory of God might be revealed in him. Well, this man who's lame by the pool, Jesus heals him. He gets up, he takes his mat, and he goes. Now, you would think he would just thank Jesus, follow Jesus, but this guy's going to have an interesting response. Next thing you see in John 5:14 is he finds this man in the temple. 
And Jesus looks at him and says, see, you've been made well. In other words, you're well now. Stop sinning so that nothing worse comes upon you. Well, why would Jesus warn this guy to stop sinning? He was in the temple. That was the place of worship to God. Oh, but it was also the place of old covenant sacrifice. It was the place where people came to actually do something in order to try to fix themselves because they had this perception of distance and separation. And the law promoted that perception of distance and separation. So living under that old covenant system was actually promoting what the Bible calls sin, and that is a perception of distance and separation. Whatever creates the illusion of distance and separation. Now, what had happened in the moment when Jesus met this man who was lame? He made him well, but he also, this man, without even realizing it perhaps, met God. There was no condemnation in that meeting. God reached out with grace in Christ and healed this man of his infirmity healed this man of what was wrong with him. This is what happens when we come to Christ. It is his reconciliation, his grace, his love, his righteousness that heals us from everything that would make us feel like we don't belong in the presence of God. Now, let's just pretend for a moment that we are the lame man and we're going along and all of a sudden we meet the son of God and he heals our eyes. And the problem is we don't know that he's the son of God. We just think he's a miracle worker. So we don't realize the gravity of what has happened in that moment. And so what do we do? Uh, maybe we're going to go give thanks to God, but we also know we've got some issues in our life. So we go straight to the temple where we buy a couple of doves or maybe a goat. And then we go and sacrifice for our sins in thanksgiving to God, but still feeling a distance and separation. And this is the deal when God does something amazing for us, heals us, delivers us, blesses us, sets us free. What is he doing? He's touching our lives with the testimony of our union with him and the righteousness we have purely by grace. So what do we do? We go out and we try to work for what we already have or try to earn what we already have, or we still walk perhaps with a sense of distance or separation because of an internal feeling of unworthiness because we haven't received the grace of Christ. What would that be called? Well, Jesus looks at this formerly lame man who's now in the temple offering sacrifices, and Jesus says, look, you're well. Stop sinning. <laughs> what is Jesus telling him to do? Stop living by a distance and separation mindset. Stop living by an old covenant standard. Uh, think about this with me. If you and I are, are old covenant Jews, we've grown up under 1,300 years of tradition, tradition that God gave to our forefathers by carving on stone the commandments that started this all. If a young man, just 30, 32 years old, 33 maybe, comes along and says, stop doing all of that stuff that God literally instituted and instead follow my words, would you and I follow him? If we were devoted to God, we more than likely wouldn't. But what if he healed your eyes? Oh, listen, now, now our devotion's being questioned. Somebody came along and, and did a miracle, 
And and now, though, we've got 1,300 years of tradition and God speaking through the law to the prophets, passed down to us. Our forefathers stood on this in faithfulness to God no matter what. And here this man, this human being, is coming along saying, this is the word of God, you've heard it said, but my words are better. But I say to you, it's what he said over and over again. Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And what would we do? This man probably thought he was doing a good thing by going to the temple. And Jesus looks at him and says, stop sinning. Not only in receiving Jesus, do you give gratitude for what he's done, but he calls you to turn away from a former lifestyle, a a former, not a former, just a former lifestyle of sin and uh, activity in the world. He's looking at people and saying, turn away from a former lifestyle or way of knowing God. You knew him before through sacrifice and from a distance, but Jesus calls that sin. That's why Paul in in Romans chapter 8 says that the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set us free. Listen to what he says here, from the law of sin and death. Paul, a former Pharisee, calls the law sin and death. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes about the law. And he says, we have now been given a ministry. We're ministers of the new covenant. This is what the Jews all thought was a cult back then. And for good reason, because God literally gave the law. And now here they're following this this man, Jesus, who was nailed to a cross, but now nobody can find his body. They're following this guy who taught people to disobey, to disregard, to not observe the law at all. And he says a most astonishing thing. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. In other words, I came to finish it. That's what Psalm 22 says he did. He finished it. He has done it. When Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, what did he do? He was fulfilling the law. It was an old covenant system that was now completely done. Not only did it get fulfilled, but you might as well say it got abolished. But fulfilled is better than abolished. You can abolish something without completing it. Jesus completed, fulfilled the law, and then it got, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, got abolished. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul calls the law a ministry of condemnation. He literally says, hey, the ministry of condemnation had some glory on it. As a matter of fact, under that law, under that ministry, under condemnation, Moses could even experience a measure of glory where he glowed, but the glow is fading. And the Apostle Paul says that in that same way, the old covenant was fading away. And it was, it was fading away. It faded away to the point of being finished in Christ, but it was still being practiced without power from the time of the crucifixion all the way up until AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. And in that 
interim period, you can see that Paul is saying, guys, it's fading away. Do you not understand that this religious system is dead and without power? It's void of any spiritual power at all. He calls it a ministry of condemnation. It's the best thing that the law can do is minister condemnation to you. But he says that the the spirit now, we have the spirit. How much more will the glory be upon you? The ministry of condemnation is the same thing as sin. What does sin do? It condemns you. You and I find condemnation when we realize that we have sin in our life. And Paul is equating not only the law to sin in Romans chapter 8, but he's equating the law to condemnation, which is exactly what sin does. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, there's a a verse that has, I think, long puzzled a lot of people. Starting in verse 10, chapter chapter 10, verse 26, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, if we sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more a sacrifice for you, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and the fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, you stop and think about this for a second. From our Western mindset, from our modern mindset, it looks like if we define the word sin there as all the naughty things you do, all the bad stuff you do, all the bad stuff you've ever done. If we say that that is sin, then the first time, or if we say that's what the writer here is thinking of, We say then the first time, let's say you get saved, you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, you say a sinner's prayer, you get baptized, and now you go out and you have a lustful thought. You look at a bad website. You say say something about somebody that's not true. You tell a lie. Cut somebody off in traffic. Cheat on your taxes. uh, Lie to your spouse. Lie to your employer. Steal something that's not yours. I'm just pulling out of the air all of the things that we historically consider to be sins, okay? Now, if you read Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26, as a Christian who's just committed a sin, you pretty much are convinced that one strike and you're out. But a couple of things about that. First off, yeah, all of those things that I just mentioned, sure, all of those are sins, right? 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it is still possible to commit sins because you're still given choice, even as a child of God and as a Christian, you still have the choice to do stupid things. And so let's say you go out and you commit a sin. 1 John 1, 9 is for you. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Here's the justice to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's strange because the justice of God is to forgive you simply because you acknowledged it. Isn't that interesting? Because that's not the way justice works here in our world. You do something wrong and you own up to it, you're still going to get punished. But the justice of God goes like this. You confess your sins His justice and his faithful promise to you is that he will forgive you of your sins and, and here's a bonus, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What does that mean? 
That means there's nothing between you and God, no distance, no separation. Your reconciled place of union with God has not been compromised only in your mind. And so now he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. So now you walk with no perception of unrighteousness at all. It's that walking in in, in righteousness. Uh, it's that walking in the gift of grace that actually keeps us free from sin. If you really want to know the truth about it. But let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. It says, if we sin willfully, after gaining knowledge of the truth, there remains no more a sacrifice for you, but only fearful expectation of judgment, fire that will come upon the adversaries. You look at that and you go, oh my goodness, what is that saying? Well, the writer of Hebrews, the entire letter to the Hebrews is all about coming out of the old covenant and into the new covenant where you 100% trust in Jesus Christ. And in order to testify to that trust in Jesus Christ, you would have to literally stop sacrificing. And so what a lot of people were doing is they were continuing to sacrifice. They were going ahead and, and uh, well, we'll just add Jesus to what we're already doing. Yes, Jesus, I believe in you, but this is my tradition. So I'm going to go ahead and just continue to worship according to my tradition, which is fine as long as your tradition isn't promoting a posture of distance and separation from God. And can I tell you, a lot of times today, a lot of traditions even that we observe within the Christian church today promote a posture or an illusion of distance and separation from God. Well, the writer of Hebrews was saying, if you want to testify to the fact that you are trusting in Jesus alone, then stop doing everything else but trust Jesus. In other words, stop doing all of the rituals that you would normally do in order to live as if you're free from sin, in order to try to somehow overcome your addiction to sin. Stop doing all the sacrifices. Stop doing all that stuff that you used to do. And so he's making a case, the writer of Hebrews is, to step completely away from the old covenant in order to embrace the new. And in this moment when he says, if we continue to sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, he's not now all of a sudden talking about the bad things we do. He's been making a case to stop living according to the old covenant law which we've already seen, according to Paul, was called the law of sin and the law of death, the ministry of condemnation. And so the writer of Hebrews, when he says, if we sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, what is he talking about? The sinning that he's speaking of here is living according to the law. It's the same reason that Jesus in John 5, 14 finds the man he just healed in the temple, sacrificing, living according to the old covenant law, thinking he's doing the right thing for God. And Jesus looks at him and what does he say? Stop sinning. Wouldn't you walk up to somebody worshiping God in church and tell them to stop sinning? Well, you wouldn't do that unless you knew something they didn't know. And that is, that their act of worship was actually a posture of separation or exactly what sin does, creating that separation between us and God. 
So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, it may be been a stumbling block to you for a long time. Understand, all it's encouraging you to do is get out of your own works, get out of your own way, get out of your own striving and your own effort and step fully into the grace of trusting Jesus 100% for your salvation. Trust Jesus 100% for the all-sufficient capacity of his ability to reconcile you back to the Father apart from your own works. Trust Jesus 100% for that place of reconciled union where you don't have to live trying to impress God, but you now can live in surrendered obedience to his voice, not working for favor, but working from favor. We still work, but we do it because we are favored and because of what has already been given to us by grace. So that in all of our works, we are giving thanks. Why? Because the work's already been done for us. And now our lives are purely a response of gratitude. Now you could say, well, the lame man just left and went to the temple because he was thankful. He was just worshiping God. But think about this. He left the presence of Jesus the Word made flesh. And stop and think about that for just a moment. He left the living God to go and worship according to a dead letter. He was still worshiping God, but he's worshiping God from a posture of distance and separation. And you know, listen, the Bible says you and I with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, beholding as in a glass, reflecting the knowledge, the glory of God. We are changed. What what do we do? We don't leave a face-to-face encounter with God in order to live according to a dead letter. It's why the scripture is so important for us to understand that the scriptures are meant to introduce you and I to a face-to-face encounter with God. And any understanding you have from scripture, that a revelation that you get that promotes an idea of distance or separation from God is not the mind of Christ. Understand, there's a lot of things in the Bible that aren't Christ-like. The question we must ask ourselves is not, is it biblical? Is The question we must ask is, is it Christ-like? There are a lot of things that are biblical that aren't Christ-like. And the Bible unveils a whole bunch of things, but only in Christ do we see the face of God. Jesus accurately and adequately represented the image, the likeness, and the glory of God here on earth for all of us to see. And so listen, I read my Bible for the purpose of seeing him more clearly, for generating even more thanksgiving for the grace that's been given to me, for hearing his voice speak because I haven't left his presence because he's promised never to leave me or forsake me. I read my Bible so that I can have a relationship with the God of the universe, not just a dead letter set of actions to make my own ego feel righteous. I read my Bible to be introduced to Jesus, not to get a set of rules on how to live so that I don't go through life, come to the end, and find out that I'm disqualified. No, it's not your works and qualification that saves you. It's Christ alone that saves you. And any perspective of your salvation that puts it all on you, hey, that's living in sin. In other words, it's living in 
separation. Now today I pray I've challenged you to see Jesus, trust Jesus 100%, put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. And from that posture, give him thanks. Why? Because he's the one who saves you by his grace. From that point, we say, you're crowned Lord of all. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Today, if you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus, just simply say, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I place my faith in you 100%. It's not by my works that I'm saved. It's purely by your sacrifice, by your blood, by your cross, by your resurrection. I am free, free from sin, addiction, bondage, from all distance and separation. So Jesus, teach me to hear your voice, to walk in your ways, to live in your righteousness Thanks, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me and filling me with your Holy Spirit. Cause your word to come alive to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, get a good Bible. Get into a good, good, new covenant-believing church, all right? And not everything that says it's new covenant is new covenant, all right? But you'll know what I'm talking about when you hear messages on the goodness and the grace and the love of God. And listen, if you want to write to us, write to Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Listen, if you want to continue to support what we're doing here on the broadcast and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news of the grace of God, then you can go to VanderbushMinistries.com. There's a give button there. And that's one of the best ways that you can support us. Or you can go to BillVanderbush.com. And there's also a give page there. Listen, we are so grateful for all of your prayers and support throughout the years. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.